gendered issue for all women. Oh, hey, welcome to day two of our International Women's Day 2020 series of interviews. If you've not already listened to Hannah and Jen's chat with the incredibly talented and utterly charming Amelia Bullmore, please do. It is a delight and also has potentially arousing yoghurt. After I record this, I'm heading off to meet Jen and we will be chatting to journalist, now author, Helen Lewis about her excellent book, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in Eleven Fights. And that chat will be coming up later this week. But now this one, I caught up with the force of nature that is Sophie Walker. And while I didn't eke out the secret as to where she gets the energy to do all the stuff she does, we had a brilliant and hopefully inspiring chat about activism and how we can all get involved, being an optimistic feminist and how we can all be one, how being the founding leader of the Women's Equality Party changed her life, her new role as CEO of the Young Women's Trust and her brilliant book, Five Rules for Rebellion, Let's Change the World Ourselves. Without further ado... Hello, I am here at Bill's with Sophie Walker, activist, founding leader of the Women's Equality Party, CEO of the Young Women's Trust, optimistic feminist and author of Five Rules for Rebellion, Let's Change the World Ourselves, which is a must-read guide to positive activism out on March the 5th. And Sophie, I am knackered just reading that out. (laughs) Have you always been a multitasker? (laughs) Yes, yes, I think so. I have always been very driven. Mm, to begin with, I think because my parents drove me quite hard. <laughs> yeah. um, my mum and dad are both working class northerners with a very strong work ethic. And it was always impressed on me that there was a lot to do and the world is an enormous place and we are none of us here for very long and there's a lot of inequality. So come on, chop, chop. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take that as a cue because there was a lot to get through. <laughs> And actually, having read your book, which I adored, one of the stories that really stuck in my mind when coming to interview you is your anecdote about when you first went to interview Gloria Steinem. And just because there is so much to cover and you were impressed by her, and rightly so, she's incredible, you got a bit flustered. And I actually think the overwhelming is a lot of the reason why people don't think they can be activists. Yes. How do we counter that? So, first of all, you will make mistakes, and that's okay. We learn from failure, or at least we learn from the failure that is taking action and figuring out that what you, what you did didn't quite work, as opposed to the failure that is failing because you did nothing at all. Mm-hmm. I included the excruciating story... <laughs> I bet you're glad I've opened <laughs> of, with that. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that. Um, ..of meeting Gloria Steinem because, because I, I, was, I, I still am mortified by that. Like, it's one of those things... You know those things where you sort of wake up in the middle of the night and just sort of, like, blush at the ceiling? Yeah, um, the shame well. Yeah, so I was feeling very overwhelmed by where I was with work at the time. I'd be, I think I was, I was leading the Women's Equality Party. I'd been leader for about eight to nine months. I was also running for Mayor of London at the time. Both those things uh, were quite surprising to me. <laughs> <laughs> and Gloria had very kindly offered to meet and have a chat and... There was just so much I wanted to ask her that um, I really didn't know where to start. I'm not kidding when I say in the book that I, I can't actually remember what happened after that because it was so it bad. Out. <laughs> well, men in black. <laughs> yeah, maybe she just zapped me with her like feminist zapper. But yeah, I think uh, there is a there is a lot to do, and any one of the like massive questions about the world that we are facing from 
the environment to inequality and feminism to globalism and technology and the future of work any one of those things is massive and when you put them all together which inevitably you do when you start to look at one they're all interconnected it can very quickly feel like I really can't do anything about this one of the things I really really wanted to do with the book was to first of all demonstrate that you can but also that it's a sort of circle of learning and as part of that learning you will screw up which is hopefully not in front of a major feminist icon. Well, the reason I brought up that story is not to embarrass you at all, but and it's also a backhanded compliment because it's how I felt coming to talk to you. Oh, my when God. When you see someone Stop. who has achieved so much, it kind of feels like they must have some sort of magic or something that makes them able to do that. And what I loved about the book and therefore that story is actually we're all fallible and that means that we can all get involved with this. yes. We can all be activists. Yes, we absolutely can. And one of the things I found very interesting when I was interviewing all of the brilliant women that I interviewed for this book was that many of them did not call themselves activists because it was seen as such a... It's a big word, right? And and also, it's a bit cheesy. It's a bit like, hi, I'm an activist. (laughs) And it also has all these other connotations of quite masculine often, you know, sort of people abseiling onto that uh, the Greenpeace warriors that abseiled onto the oil, oil tank, there's yeah. all sort of abseiling and then there were the brilliant women who abseiled into the um, into Westminster to protest Section 28. I think it's worth pointing out that Sophie did abseil into this interview <laughs> which I was a bit surprised by to be honest Well, you know, I just ground floor I thought, I thought it would be safe <laughs> but I think I mean, activism, it's taking actions, it's breaking down a massive vision into, into what's doable. I'm really glad you mentioned how big a word activism is. You touched on two things there that I was really excited by. I wondered if you thought activism is misconstrued and given the same sort of negative connotations that feminism is quite often mm, a victim of as well. Um, well, I, I mean, I don't think anything... It's quite so negative as feminism, is it? I mean, that they really did a job on, on that. You know, it was such a concerted effort to make it really such a thing that no decent-minded person would want to associate with. Um, I think it's been a fairly successful campaign on that front. Well, do you know what? Recent research from Young Women's Trust has found that 70% of young women would call themselves a feminist now. Oh, that is amazing news. Isn't that lovely? That's great. Yeah, it's great news. It's great news. And also, one in ten have been on some form of protest in the last year. Way! Oh, this is incredible news. Yes. We will definitely come back to that. And the other thing you mentioned there was when you were talking to all these incredible people that you've chatted to for Five Rules a lot of them wouldn't necessarily describe themselves as activists. And when I was reading the book, I felt very inspired, I felt very hopeful, it made me cry a little bit, but it also made me feel like maybe I was an activist. And if I was already a bit of an activist, I could do more. Yeah, good. Do you think there were that a was lot the aim. Of... <laughs> hey, no, sign on the dotted line. <laughs> oh, God, she's brought a contract. Um, do you think there are a lot more activists out there than believe they are? Yes, and that was exactly the point of the book. So I think there's a difference between being an activist and being a campaigner, right? Mm -hmm. I think a campaigner is uh, somebody who campaigns doggedly for a particular thing to happen. An activist is someone who can, I think, mobilise other people and bring 
other people with them to achieve a particular end. Now, obviously, there's a that's a that's a bit of a Venn diagram. There's definitely an overlap work between between, yeah, between activism and campaigning. But I think the really key thing about activism is if you're doing it right, you're bringing people with you. And I meet so many people particularly women in in my field of work who are already doing this work, who are already working, for example, in their communities to provide answers and support in spaces where, you know, local government funding has been slashed, uh, where policies have been written by people with no understanding of the lived experience of of Mm -hmm. most of the people of that community. And if you were to say to them, wow, you're a fantastic activist, they'd be like, what? Pa- so, is it Pat Warhurst or Pam Warhurst? Pam Warhurst. Oh, God, I loved her. Yes. In Todmorden. In Todmorden, And yes. what they've done is just incredible. Yes. They've just gone, well, no one's looking out for us. We're going to have to do this ourselves. Yes, incredible, edible. Planting food and reconnecting community to uh, to what's on their plate yeah. uh, by means of jobs and community pride. Yeah, I mean, she's amazing. I, but I, But there's also a whole other group of people who are on the edge of doing something, who are beginning to think... God, I can't take I can't take much more of this, or like, you know, I, this is just awful. What can I do about it? I think we are encouraged to believe that things can get better if we just tweak what's in front of us, you know. But progress doesn't happen by tweaking broken systems. You have to build entirely new ones, and new systems need new ideas, and that's why we need you and whoever else is listening, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and all of you who are listening. I hope there's thousands of you listening. Me too. But I think there is a temptation to think, well, somebody somewhere's going to come along and either tweak this or fix it. So first of all, it needs more than a tweak, tweak or a fix. It needs yeah. something new. And second of all, nobody's coming. <laughs> nobody's coming to the rescue, so we have to rescue ourselves. Hooray! <laughs> now we're liberated and we can get on with it. Do you think you've always been an activist? No. What changed? I was forced into it. My parents were political. My mum was a member of the women's liberation movement. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Glasgow in the 1970s and I was very conscious even as a small child that they were very active and that they would get very upset by social injustice and that they were like looking for ways to tangibly make a difference. When we chatted um, for the Margaret Thatcher documentary, you talked about going on marches for the miners with yes, your mum. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, uh, and one of the other things that my mum did was to set up a clinic for uh, in- information about access to abortion, which was very difficult to access in Glasgow at the time. Yeah. Anyway, the point I'm getting to is that I was around sort of activist parents, if you like, but when I, when I left and went to work, I decided to do something completely different and I became a reporter because I wanted to, um, I wanted to explore the world and I wanted to tell stories and I've always felt that, that communication is a really, really important part of bringing people together and, you know, listening and learning about the world, you know, which is a great and glorious place and we don't know enough about it and we don't know enough about each other. I became an activist when all of that sort of went sideways because my daughter had autism and it took us five years to get that diagnosis and she was completely let down by pretty much everybody that was supposed to not let her down. Well, girls don't get autism. No, 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 just boys and they all are, they all look like Rain Man and they're all really good at numbers and they're all systematising uh-huh. and they can't make eye contact, yeah. So we yeah. sort of fell foul of that stereotype but we also fell foul of you know a school system that couldn't brook any difference 
our, our special educational needs coordinator turned, turned around to us one day when, when my daughter was being really badly bullied over a long period of time and this woman said, well, you know, she brings it on herself. Oh, my God. So we had a school system that didn't get it. We had a medical system that didn't get it. Uh, we, you know, the support services were not available. And it just became obvious that I was going to have to do this myself. You know, there wasn't the support that we needed. I was frequently leaving work to go and tussle with the school or go and pick up my daughter again. I just thought, well, I have to do something about this. I mean, it really was, that was as basic as it was. Yeah. Um, and from there, I generally became an agitator and a fundraiser and a campaigner and a lobbyist and I connected to a whole bunch of um, other women specifically raising girls specifically with autism who had all also felt similarly isolated and misunderstood and then I discovered that you can build you know you can build your own communities you can find your own communities and you can build your own networks and that that group that you know that that we all set up together is now really flourishing last time I went there were about 50 families there loads and loads of of girls like looking out for each other swapping tips um, exchanging information about services um, inviting people who'd done it before to help each other do it for the first time I mean it you know it was great and it was a real it was a it was a real breakthrough moment for me where I, I just thought wow you know there are so many people who are living it if only we could get more of the people who are living it in among the people who are deciding what to do about it yeah i like that in five rules it's it's about activism rather than performative activism oh there's it, a lot of that about yes which there is a, there's a lot of that about and I was going to ask, can we high-five on a, a podcast? Can we yes. high-five? Uh, optimistic feminist. Yeah. yeah I cheered. Yes. And that is yes. all about actions, not performance. It is. It's also about, I think, understanding that defiance is a key strategic tool. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't mean just in a, like, <laughs> you know, F you. But it, very much in a sort of understanding that hope requires determination and it requires resilience and it it insists that you get out of bed every day and reset your determination that the world can be a better place and that's really hard and it's also deeply alarming to anybody who's trying to protect the status quo yes like you know if you say you're a feminist they're like oh god not one of them if you say you're an optimistic feminist they're like oh shit she's serious (laughs) I love it. Let's talk briefly about the five rules because I don't want to... You've written a book. That's why it needs that space to talk properly about them. So I'm just going to say what they are. Okay. And I love that it isn't... It's not prescriptive. They're all big topics that you can approach Mm. your own way, which Mm. I think is amazing. One, defeat despair. Two, channel rage. Three, hope as power. Four, collaborate with compassion. And five, practice perseverance. Mm. They're great. And your chapter on hope was my favourite. Oh. Yeah. Because I'm often saying it's the hope that'll kill me. <laughs> oh, that's, no, that's, that's terrible. No, no, but <laughs> but it's, it's so important to have it. And what you capture beautifully is that it, it's fierce. It's not passive. Yes. Hope has to be fierce. Yes. So, yeah, you, yeah really I, I love that chapter so much. I'm that's really the one cast. that made me cry, but oh. also made me like, yeah. <laughs> How did you condense activism into sort of five go-tos that most humans could look at and go all right I can have a go at that it took me quite a long time 
to figure out that that was what I was actually trying to do, although I was already sort of doing it by the time I realised that that's what I was doing. Mm -hmm. When I stepped down from the Women's Equality Party, I was very tired and quite emotional. That makes me sound like I was drunk. I really wasn't. (laughs) I, I was very burned out. And I was, you know, a bit outfaced actually. It was, it was like, it was like, oh my god, there's so so much to do, and how useful have I actually been? And maybe I should sort of get out of the way for somebody who can be a bit more useful. I spent uh, the next few months sort of um, sitting on the sofa, thinking, trying not to think actually, actually trying not to think, trying to rest. But my brain just kept going round and round and round and round and round. And being like, how do you actually do this? How do you actually do this? What is the what is the secret to actually doing this? And, and that was when I began to understand that activism was not a series of pitched battles but actually a philosophy for life yeah and if you could figure out i thought what underpinned that philosophy then that might be a way to make it stick so i did a lot of reading and i started interviewing lots of people who were doing interesting work all around the world I thought about the sort of cycle of development that I had been through and I started to chart, you know, bring all that information together and it became pretty clear actually that there were there were key parts that you know, key moments that we had all shared in in some way or had identified as being a point to either get through or a point to try to get to or something that had brought learning and then I also understood that actually it's not uh, linear but it's cyclical and that it's okay if you come back to feeling despair you know and it's okay if you like get really angry again in fact sometimes those things are really necessary and important if you are to set off again with renewed purpose but the key is to also understand that first of all you can set off again with renewed purpose and also that Wherever you are on the cycle of activism, somebody else is on a different point. So, so long as we're all on it together, the point at which you're flagging, somebody else is like finding hope, right? Yeah. And that's really sustaining. Yeah, yeah. You end the book with a call to arms. So, what is it you would really love people to take away from reading Five Rules? Are we forming a rebel alliance? <laughs> I would like people to understand or to feel that they are the answer we have all been waiting for. And I know how absurd that seems. You know, there'll be people thinking, I don't know what you're talking about, and I've given up on all that, and, you know, politics or politicians are all a bit crap, and the systems don't work for me, and, you know, I'm just, I'm going to look after my own and keep my head down. Mm -hmm. But actually, the point at which society is remade and nourished and blooms is the point when different thinking is applied and we have never more needed different thinking right now and so what I really hope is that this book can offer some support along the way of bringing your brilliant new idea to the attention of the people who need to know about it. listeners we very much like you listening but we would bloody love you to become viewers our live gigs are things of joy so you should totally come to one our next show is in birmingham on sunday the 29th of march at the very civilized time of 5 p.m and hannah and i will be chatting with the boss sarah millican 
the very talented actor and playwright Helen Monks, excellent comedian and actor Janice Connolly, aka Mrs. Barbara Nice, and A.N. Other T.B.A. We're also in the process of finalising gig bookings in Brighton, Manchester, Milton Keynes, London and Edinburgh. So keep an eye on our website for details of those bad boys. That website? www.standardissuepodcast.com With five rules, it felt very much like there's all these brilliant people you've spoken to, all these tips that you've picked up, all that you've learned along your personal journey which has been really hard at times and you are very candid about the fact that you you hit pretty much rock bottom and felt very much despair, anger, hopeless Mm. and picked yourself up again. And I just wondered, if you had got all of the knowledge that's in that book before you became leader of the Women's Equality Party, (laughs) would you have done things differently? I ask myself that a lot, actually, and... um, not least because I'm now trying to apply all this learning, you know, in the work that I'm doing uh, for the Young Women's Trust uh, and various other projects. I, I think the answer is that I would have changed. I would change all of it and none of it. Um, I'm sorry that that sounds like a bit of a get out. I mean, I think that one of the reasons the Women's Equality Party worked as well as it has done and got off the ground as fast as it did was because we were a bunch of people who were very much in the same place and learning as we went along and I was clearly somebody I think who was learning on the job mm-hmm. um, and making mistakes in public which uh, while embarrassing at times for me I hope was also encouraging for women to join the party and feel like it was a place where you know we could look after each other and learn as we went. I also think that if I was to bring everything I know now into that job uh, I would probably frighten quite a lot of people and be like right come on how do we get um, you back uh, <laughs> I mean it was the most extraordinary period of my life it was like being struck by lightning I mean that just doesn't happen to most people and and it was amazing and and I will be forever grateful to the people that supported me to do it and invited me to do it what was your favorite bit of it was it running for mayor? Yes. That was so cool. That was so cool. It was so... I mean, Did you know, it, it was... just, like, totally it felt out mad. Of this world? It felt mad. But it was also fun, I think, also because it was quite early on, so we weren't jaded yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we, we weren't quite battle-scarred yet. We were still sort of, like, skipping through the daffodils, going, oh, look, isn't this fun? Also because that election campaign... It just made a lot of people sit up, you know? It made a lot of people sit up when we went out and said, you know what, we're here for the four million women in London who generally don't get policies written for them. And also because it's actually proportional representation, that vote. So people felt they could vote for us and make a difference. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest challenges that WEP had and still has is being a small party in a voting system that forces the dominance of two big parties and essentially encourages people to vote against what they don't want rather than to vote for what they do want. And that's not to say that I don't think the presence of WEP on the political scene is incredibly important because I think it has really shifted by simply having a political party that positions feminism as a political ideology in and of itself has been really, really key. Absolutely. And just waking up women who maybe didn't even realise it was an option to think along those lines. Exactly. 
There's one more thing that you cover in the book that I'd like to touch on before we talk about the Young Women's Trust. Although, obviously, it's all sort of wrapped in together. (laughs) But I couldn't not mention it because we're meeting the day after Harvey Weinstein was found guilty on two counts. Do you mean convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein? Convicted rapist Harvey Weinstein. Although I had to look up third-degree rape. Turns out, still rape, guys. Yes. Um, And criminal sexual assault. It feels like a hopeful tipping point, but one that demands forward action rather than celebration oh yes and you talk about the hashtag we too which I think is a brilliant concept and I wondered if you would expand on that for us please well I have to say I mean one of the things that has made my heart hurt a little bit over the last however many hours since the verdict came in has been the way in which women have discussed the verdict with with difficulty, you know, with a sense of, like, we can't actually believe this has happened, mm-hmm. with a sense of somebody's going to take take this away at some I, point. I didn't think, at, I know, thought he was going to get away with it. Yeah, and, you know, you just know all the opinion pieces that were written by women and fully anticipating that he was, you know, it was going to go the other way. And um, so that this sense of sort of, like, elated disbelief and worry that it might disappear again speaks volumes about where we are really actually in terms of understanding what violence against women is, how, how connected it is to power and inequality and, and how really entrenched that inequality and consequent violence is in, in all of our societal and economic systems. So yeah, I mean, we've got a massive, massive job to do. I think that one of the big failures of the Me Too movement was that it it focused disproportionately on the experiences of white women. And I think that happened because the media is misogynist and racist and it likes to write stories that simultaneously erase black women and tear down white women. And I think there's an awful lot to do before all, all women can be heard. And I think the structural bit is really, really important now. Um, you know, I think my worry with Me Too was that it was undeniably powerful, but it was a collection of singular voices all shouting. And I think the next bit has really got to be about how do we link arms and create new structures and new spaces in which all women can flourish. Absolutely agree. What you were saying about women not believing it was going to happen or not, not thinking it could possibly go the way it has. We've got to remember, actually, that he was found not guilty on two counts Mm. as well, which is devastating for those women. Yes. But even when I spoke to Jodie Cantor and Megan Tue, who'd done all that investigation, they were like, don't know if he's going to get held accountable for this. Yeah. It's it's horrifying, and this could so easily be seen as a win, which is how the papers are treating it. It's a win for women, and then we just get put back in our box. Yes, and I think that... Another important part, and this is one of the things that Gloria Steinem actually talks about a lot, is is the importance of women telling their own stories and a media that makes space for women's stories. And you know, history is written by the winners. The structures are written by the winners. Uh, this is you know something that that I wrote about quite early on in in the book, which is that you know despair is structural. It's it's built into our structures by. Um, people in power who are counting on our feelings of powerlessness to keep them in their places and that's why our response to it has to be structural we have to rebuild and we have to really keep our eye on the prize and focus on what needs to change and how we are going to change it and I really you know the Me Too movement 
started that and it did some really, really important work in terms of uh, challenging ideas uh, um, of what angry women look like and, yeah. you know, and just making, making it acceptable for women to be angry because women's anger is... Uh, Unseemly. It's... <laughs> It's joking, not, no, no, but it, yeah, it's, it's yeah. unacceptable. It's made small. It's belittled. It's dismissed. It's portrayed as something unnatural and uh, stupid. The Me Too movement made huge steps in terms of actually saying, "No, we are. Like, you have no fucking idea how angry we are." Actually, because uh-huh. yeah. we were really fucking angry and still really fucking angry. But there's a positive that has that has come up, and it came up at the top of this interview, which is glorious, and that is more young women are identifying this this rage and this power that comes with feminism. So let's talk about yes. the Young Women's Trust. Yes, let's. What is it? What is it all about? And what are the campaigns that you're heading up at the moment? Because they're very exciting. The Young Women's Trust used to be known as the YWCA, you might have known it as. I'm yeah, try, I'm trying to do the trying arm do the dance. I don't yes. have enough arms. Well, we never, we never got a dance because we never got a song. <laughs> so if anybody wants to do a Young Women's Trust song, yeah, we're open to offers. So essentially it's a feminist organisation which campaigns for young women's economic justice. We are really focused on making sure that young women get equal access to and equal choices around work Mm -hmm. Um, that is the work of their choice that will pay them well and fairly in respectful workplaces that you know allows for happy productivity and creates a society and an economy in which women's offer is seen and valued and important to everybody and also takes into account the unpaid labour that is doled out to women across the globe. Precisely. And so we are launching this week a campaign to highlight the amount of unpaid work that young women do, which is banked by the government and used to provide economic choices for men instead. So that's us straight out of the box with a, with a, to create a better understanding of what work is, what work we value, it's interesting, it's, you know, it came up in the discussions around the immigration scheme, didn't it, about the, the idea of there's all these people who are economically inactive who will just step into all the low-paid jobs that the government's not interested in. And the fact is, a huge chunk of them are, are already doing jobs that the government's not interested in, um, and they're not paid at all. Yeah. And they're yep. doing care work, they're looking after children, they're looking after elderly parents, they're looking after people with disabilities, they are doing domestic labour, and they are young women, and they are absolutely fundamental to a functioning society and they are dismissed time and time and time again and we're going to do something about that well i am chuffed (laughs) um because it's not even that they're just being dismissed they're being actively harmed by policies like universal credit yes which is just outrageous yes I mean, that is a, that's another uh, key part of our manifesto. We're going to be launching a young women's manifesto written by and for the young women that we work with. A really core ask to that is, look, you know, we, we need to rethink what we mean by welfare. Mm-hmm. We need to um, understand what support people need and when they need it. We hear all the time from young women who, uh, because they are taking on the disproportionate burden of caring responsibilities are reliant on welfare um, and they are basically you know told that they are feckless for needing it and then forced to wait weeks and weeks of payments and 
are increasingly skipping meals or relying on food banks. Um, you know, this, this is not a functioning system. It is pushing women into poverty, and that is not good for any of us if we hope to live in a nation that offers opportunities for all, as our Prime Minister has stated. <laughs> oh, should we start believing him? I'm not sure I'm ready to start believing him. I think we can be holding him to account. Absolutely. So how can people who wouldn't class themselves as young women anymore, because you put an 18 to 30 limit on that, <laughs> damn you, but how can we get involved and how can we help the cause? You can join us. You can join us as an ally. You can be a supporter. We are launching a movement of people that is both young women that we are going to be giving activist training too so they can go out and make change in their own communities with their own experiences and talents and, and creative thoughts but also we want to we want to hear from people who are who want to be allies to young women in their daily actions and whether that's financial support or whether it is sharing resources and networks and generally shouting about how brilliant young women are and the work that young women's trust is doing then please please come and find us what kind of response have you had from the young women since she took the helm as CEO? We'd have to ask them. Um, I, think, I think young women are really enjoying the opportunity to do activism. Mm -hmm. I think what we're trying to do as an organisation is to tap this real impatience for change and to demonstrate to national government that our ideas and policy suggestions work and they work on a local level, and that's why we're going to be building out this, this, this local campaign at community level that can just show how brilliant young women are. I mean, you know, I think young women are the answer to everything, and I'm determined to ensure that everybody else sees that too. We have to pass that baton on to someone. Yes. <laughs> we're in safe hands. I've met a load of them, don't you worry. <laughs> at the risk of exhausting myself on your behalf, what else are you up to? <laughs> Uh, what else am I up to? We are also launching a project called Activate Collective, mm -hmm. which is a fund to financially support female community activists to stand for political office. And this uh, came about as a result of some of the other thinking that I had on leaving the Women's Equality Party, which is that one of the big failures of politics is a failure of representation. Yeah, We need to get more women, and particularly women from different backgrounds, particularly women of colour, particularly disabled women, particularly women from low-income uh, backgrounds, into politics and creating the kind of politics and policies that speaks to those lived experiences and those needs. And that also, it takes a lot of money to do politics. Yeah. It takes a lot of money to do politics, and particularly for women who have got uh, childcare responsibilities, you know, for women who are not earning as much as men, for women who don't have savings to the same extent as men, or pensions, or who, you know, can't take paid leave from work in the same way. You know, standing, running for office is it's a big drain on your finances, and, and that also accounts for one of the many reasons that fewer women do it. And, and what I really wanted to do was to create a big pot of money, fundamentally, like really practical yep. support, but and also by supporting specifically female community activists from minority backgrounds, really bring that completely different perspective and experience into politics because it's so, so sorely needed. And I think there's been some really good work done, particularly 
over the last year or two in terms of encouraging more women to do politics, to run for office. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole all the Ask Her to Stand campaigns, yep. and you know, there's been an awful lot of really good work. The Parliament Project's doing some fantastic work. I think there is more work to do to encourage women who really don't think that politics is for them and have given up on it completely and yet are probably doing exactly the work that's needed already in their local communities. Those are the people I want to find and, and get into Westminster and Holyrood and everywhere they need to be. Yeah. Do you miss politics with a capital P? Thoughtful face. <laughs> Yeah, of course I do. That's not to say I wanted to do it again or right now. I think that... I just think politics is in such an interesting place at the moment. Interesting stroke. Maddening. Yes. I'm doing the work I'm doing at the Young Women's Trust because I really feel that there's a there's a really important work to be done in the third sector. I think the charity sector has never been more needed uh, and I think that... It's also never been more necessary for the charity sector to to reinvent itself, to move on from sort of slightly old-fashioned, benevolent models of giving to to a sort of facilitating and supporting and representing and looking and sounding like the groups of people that we say we want to advocate for. And, And I think there's some really exciting stuff happening in the charity sector that I'm really glad to be here. You're also going on a book tour for Five Rules. I am, yes, I am. Uh, I'm going to be all over the shop. <laughs> I'll be seeing you in Cambridge. Helen Lewis is talking to you yeah, in Cambridge. Yeah, me oh and Helen God. Lewis. Yes, it's exciting. Um, yes. For both, like, both of you are yes, excited. I'm really looking forward to that. She's written such a brilliant book. Uh, oh, Difficult Women. Difficult Women. It's cracking, yes. isn't it? So I'm doing I don't understand doing why that. you would like that book. Difficult Women, no, really? No, Does that yes. speak to you? I didn't think I was going to like it, but it turned out it was quite interesting. <laughs> So, yes, I'm doing uh, Cambridge and Oxford and Bristol and Bath and Leeds and York and Manchester and Nottingham and a whole load of places. And you can find all of those dates on Twitter, where I have pinned it to the top of my Twitter page. Or and you you're can find at Sophie it, Running. I'm at Sophie Running. Or you can find it via uh, my publishers, who are the very lovely Icon Books. Awesome. Sophie, thank you so much for sparing me time in your stupidly busy schedule. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's nice to have a sit down.